0: This morning's scripture is from Matthew uh, chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Hallelujah. Good morning. As Tommy said, my name is Chris, Chris King. I am one of the elders here at Watermark. Uh, I am, just to give you a little bit more background about myself, I am husband to Danielle, dad to Francis, and soon-to-be dad to Naomi uh, in about five weeks here, so we're really excited about that. Um, I'm also a graduate student at the University of South Florida. I'm working on my Ph.D. in philosophy and religion. Uh, So I'm trying to work on my dissertation, Uh, I've been working on that for a while, Uh, it's tentatively titled something like Models of Sociality in Gadamer, Rosenzweig, Levinas and Bonhoeffer. So what I thought I'd do today is um, try to try that out for you and we'll start with page one. Oh, you think I'm joking? (laughs) uh, I'm joking. Okay. Okay. so I'd like to focus on the Lord's Prayer today and, and uh, our practice of praying the Lord's Prayer. And uh, so I want to say from the outset that there are a lot of things to say about prayer and a lot of things to say about the Lord's Prayer, and I'm not going to say all of those things. Um, I'm not even going to say a lot of those things, so we'll just say a few things here uh, in the time that's given us. Uh, and so let's pray and get to it. Dear Lord, we thank you for this day that you've given us um, We thank you for the rain and uh, your provision in our lives. Uh, We thank you for this body of believers uh, that you've gathered here. Lord, I pray that you would give me clarity of mind today and help me to communicate well and effectively. Uh, We thank you for your presence with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so it's been said that um, when approaching the Bible or any passage of Scripture, it's good to keep in mind three things, three dimensions or three worlds that Scripture presents to us. So I'm going to structure my talk today uh, in some ways uh, in terms of this. Uh, So first we have the world behind the text, then we have the world in front of, no, we have the world of the text, and then we have the world in front of the text. There we go. Good. Got those visuals. All right. Um, So the world behind the text is the historical and cultural background uh, to the biblical text itself. Um, This has to do with the original, the author and the intended audience, um, stuff that's going on in their culture that may not be going on in our culture. Um, So it's good to to think through and talk about that stuff. Um, The world of the text is the linguistic features of the text itself. So the Words, the meanings of the words in their original languages in Greek and Hebrew, uh, as well as the genre of writing uh, that the Scripture is and uh, maybe the literary features of of the text itself. And then the world in front of the text is the ways in which uh, Scripture has been interpreted and applied throughout church history. Uh, And for us today, I want to think about uh, this world in front of the text in terms of how Christians have... Performed the scripture which is in front of us. And so we'll, we'll be thinking about that as well. So first I want to look at the world behind the text and just give a little bit of background to uh, the, the text that we have today. Um, what has become known to us today as the Lord's Prayer. Um, this passage is part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and it is is part of um, some more comments that he's making on the topic of prayer in general. Uh, So Jesus says things like, prayer can be practiced in selfish and self-righteous ways. Uh, Prayer can be focused uh, all on one's own self uh, if we aren't careful. And so Jesus says that there are people uh, who pray in public and pray in the synagogues, primarily to get noticed by others, to, for others to know how spiritual that we are. Uh, and so Jesus tells us, don't be, don't be like those uh, people. He calls them hypocrites. He says, don't be a hypocrite. Um, instead, Jesus tells his listeners um, that the way in which one prays, um, that is, the motives that one has while one prays, the way in which one prays is important, perhaps as important as the content of the prayers themselves. That is, he says, the way in which one prays, or the the motives that we have, um, is perhaps as important as the content of the prayers themselves. So with this in mind, I want to suggest that the prayer which Jesus gives his listeners to pray, um, it's not just a list of things to pray, um, but it is uh, meant to foster within us a right spirit and a proper attitude in prayer. And I want to say that this prayer is about spiritual formation. It's about shaping us before God in our speech to God. In the celebration of discipline, Richard Foster says that to pray is to change. Prayer is the central avenue God uses to transform us. And so I'm going to argue today that the Lord's Prayer uh, can be an avenue for our own spiritual transformation. And so that's going to be sort of my main point is that the Lord's prayer is for our own spiritual transformation. Uh, Another interesting thing about the background to this text is that uh, Jesus doesn't pull this prayer out of thin air. It's not like completely his his own invention, but rather he follows um, the structure and style of other uh, Jewish liturgical prayers that were used in the synagogue in his day. Um, And so we have record of uh, a bunch of those prayers. One of them is called the 18 benedictions. Um, So there's 18 of them and their benedictions. Uh, Another one is called the Aramaic Kaddish, And we have that here. Uh, So it says, Exalted and hallowed be his great name in the world which he created according to his will. May he let his kingdom rule in your lifetime and in your days and in the lifetime of the whole house of Israel speedily and soon and to this say amen so we see that that this prayer you know bears a number of resemblances to the lord's prayer and uh, so the lord's prayer is uh, similar in style and structured to um, other jewish prayers of the day but there are some interesting original things uh, and new things as well and so i'll point those out as we go along So now I want to move into the world of the text. And I want to look at um, sort of each phrase of the prayer as we go along. And I I don't want to spend too much time on any one phrase. um, So we'll just point a few things out uh, and and then we'll move forward. But I want to say three basic things that that the Lord's Prayer talks about. First, it talks about our own identity, who we are as the people of God. Second, uh, it talks about God's identity. Who God is. And then third, it talks about our position in relation to God, how we pos- position ourselves in prayer before God. So let's look at the first phrase, uh, which is, Our Father in heaven. The first thing that I noticed about this is that it says, Our Father. Now, even though Jesus says that uh, we can and sometimes should pray in secret um, by ourselves, when I'm praying, My prayer isn't my God, but it's our God. And I think that there's something important in that, that when I pray, I'm not praying to a God that's God for me, but I'm praying it to a God that's God for us. Um, And I think there's some important connections that we can make later on um, today in that. Um, Another thing is that that this positions us... um, uh, as children of God. If God is our father, then we're children of God. And, and this is something interesting that the other prayers, the Kaddish, and the 18 benedictions don't describe God as father. And so I think this is important. And it's an important theme that comes up throughout the New Testament um, that we as the people of God are children of God. And so one of my favorite verses, First uh, John 3, 1 says this, see what manner of love the father has given to us that we would be called the children of God. And that is what we are. So there's a couple of things here that we're called the children of God and we actually are the children of God. So, um, there's, so there's a general sense in we're, which we're all like the children of God by virtue of having been created by him. Uh, but there's another sense in which um, there's, there's something deeper going on here. So we've all been created by God and, and part of God's household um, of creation. Uh, but the message of the gospel is that, that each of us has walked out of the household of God, that we've desired our own independence. We don't want to be dependent upon God, and so we want to go out into the world and figure out things for ourselves, do things on our own. Um, we want to be autonomous. Uh, and the message of the gospel is that uh, when we try to do that, We became slaves to sin, and so God pulled us out of our slavery um, back into his household, adopted us as his own daughters and sons. And so we think about um, the parable of the prodigal son here. So uh, another thing in this phrase, our father who art in heaven, uh, is it describes or identifies the locatedness or the whereabouts of God as being in heaven. Uh, And this serves, on the one hand, to identify uh, or separate sort of our earthly fathers from our father who presides over the earth. And in in another sense, it serves to sort of identify God's transcendence in general. God is not like the gods of the Greeks and the Romans Um, who take on human characteristics, uh, who are very fallible and make morally questionable uh, decisions and mistakes. Uh, Instead, it says that God is completely different from that. God is above our flawed concepts of humanity and above our flawed concepts of fatherhood. So the ancient monk John Cassian kind of wraps this up Uh, Here's a picture of him. He's got a sweet beard. Uh, One day I hope to grow a beard of that length. Um, But he says this. He says, when therefore we confess with our own voice that the God and Lord of the universe is our Father, we profess that we have in fact been admitted from our servile condition into an adopted sonship. That is, we have been taken from our slavery to sin, and we have been adopted into the family of God. And this is going to lead into the next phrase, hallowed be your name. Now, hallowed isn't really a word that we use, but to hallow something means to make holy, to set apart, um, to purify. And uh, there's a couple of important things going on here um, that... uh, are important to note. Um, So the background to this is that um, in the ancient Near East and in uh, Greek mystery religions, if you know the name of a god, uh, that means that you have control over that god. You are able to manipulate that god. Um, If you have the name of god and you can invoke it, then essentially that god has to uh, grant whatever request you make of that god. That God has to follow your orders if you know that's God's name, uh, and so by contrast, when we say "Hallowed be your name," um, right, this uh, this hearkens us back to God's self-revelation to Moses at the burning bush, where God says His name to Moses, uh, and the that Moses has to take off his sandals because it's so holy. So there's this notion that God's name and God's holiness are intimately connected. Um, That that God, to say hallowed be your name is to say that I'm gonna let God be God. Uh, I'm not gonna try to be Lord over God and I'm not gonna try to control God. It's again to say that God is holy, holy other. And I think that this is important for the next portion Of the prayer. So next we have the phrase, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That the kingdom of God is coming was the message of Jesus. Um, And the kingdom of God can be defined in general as the rule and reign of God over the earth. Um, Now, the kingdom of God um, we proclaim did come in the manifestation of Jesus on the earth, Um, it was inaugurated in that coming. But we also say that the kingdom of God is still coming. It won't be fully realized until Jesus comes once again. And so this request, your kingdom come, your will be done, it's a cry for God's purposes and God's will to be made manifest on the earth uh, right now where we are. It's a, it's a cry for God's kingdom and rest and peace to be made manifest Uh, and places where there aren't rest and peace. Um, That God's kingdom would come to places like Iraq and Syria, where there's refugees in need, um, where there are people naked, both physically and spiritually, and need to be clothed. Note that this is not a request that we be taken up into where God is, uh, into heaven but rather it's a request that heaven come down to earth. It's a request that God's will and God's reign and God's purposes invade the very world we inhabit. Next we have uh, this phrase, give us this day our daily bread. And this would remind its listeners of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness Looking for food, and when they couldn't find food of their own, God provided them manna. God gave them daily the food that they needed to survive. And this is our position. And this request: Give us this day our daily bread. It's not just about food, although it is that. Um, it's it signals our absolute dependence on God, who is our provider. Um, apart from God's provision, we're unable to feed ourselves apart from God's resources, were empty, not only physically, but morally and spiritually as well. And here I would argue that asking for bread is not a demanding that God would give us what we want in the manner of the pagans who try to control God, um, but, but rather it, it signals our dependence upon God. Uh, and so one theologian puts it like this, to ask, he says, and here to ask for bread To ask is actually to acknowledge not being the origin of every good and every gift. And it is to actually acknowledge him whom we address for what he is. All prayer confesses God as giver by dispossessing us of our egocentrism. Uh, That is all true prayer, I would say. All true prayer gets us out of the center. It rids us of our selfishness and our self-centeredness by acknowledging that it is God who is the provider for us all. The next phrase that we have is this one, forgive us our debts for we have also forgiven our debtors. Now, this phrase is a little bit tricky when you're saying the Lord's Prayer, perhaps in a new environment, in a new church or group, uh, because at least this is, this is what happens to me. I say, you know, forgive us our trespasses and then everybody else is saying Debts. And then, you know, I said, forgive us our debts, and everybody else is saying trespasses. I don't know if that ever happens to you guys, but it's humiliating. <laughs> Just kidding. It's not really too humiliating. All right. Um, but the, the Greek word here is ophilema. Uh, that's what I'm going with. Uh, ophilema, it means uh, a financial obligation, and so it literally in the Greek means debts. But in the Jewish usage of the day, Uh, it had this uh, connotation of of owing someone something like you sinned against them. And so uh, it very much in the Jewish mindset has this idea of having sinned against someone and so owing them and having to make something right. And so uh, I think the word debts or trespasses, either one uh, can fit the context here. Um, Another interesting thing is that in the 18 benedictions, the prayer that I mentioned earlier, it it talks about um, asking forgiveness from God, but it doesn't say anything about our forgiving others in return. And I think this is one of Jesus, uh, something that Jesus says multiple times where he connects um, the forgiveness of God uh, to our forgiveness of others. And I think that the idea here is that we should not seek forgiveness from God if forgiveness is inoperative in our own lives. Um, that we only begin, begin to understand forgiveness um, when we forgive others, right? Forgiveness is, it's really a hard thing. It's not an easy thing when someone has really and truly hurt you to say, no, I forgive you of, of that, um, all right. Forgiveness is hard. It's self-sacrificial. And I would venture to say that every time that we forgive, right, we experience um, something of the way that God feels when he forgives us of our sins. Um, all right. It's easier to hold the grudge to lord our own righteousness over someone else's mistake. Um, but because forgiveness is self-sacrificial, when we engage in it, uh, I would suggest that we engage in becoming more like the nature and character of God himself. The final phrase of the prayer that Matthew records for us is this, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Um, And this, again, uh, signals our absolute dependence upon God. Apart from God's grace, we will fail and we will perish. We cannot deliver ourselves um, we're utterly reliant on gra- God's grace for our deliverance. So I would argue that the entire flow and movement of this prayer is one of decentering. centering uh, The true prayer is one in which we're not at the center. Uh, and if we think uh, about how Jesus is uh, encouraging us to, to pray this prayer, if we truly understand it, it means that... Um, Practicing this prayer, praying this prayer, um, makes us more like God. It it gets us uh, out of the way. It identifies us as the children of God. Yes, but it signals that we are children, that we're independence that that we're in dependence, but we're not independent um, from God. So, praying the Lord's prayer, we learn humility and practice our own dependence on God. So now I would like to shift to the world in front of the text, um, the ways in which this text has been used and practiced in the church, in church history. Um, So you may be thinking at this point, wait a minute, you didn't cover the whole prayer, right? There's this last phrase of the Lord's Prayer, which says, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Um, And so... What's interesting here um, that I actually just found out in researching for this is that um, this last phrase isn't found in the earliest copies of Matthew's Gospel. Uh, In fact, scholars think that it was added in um, sometime later. Uh, And this phrase is found in another early Christian document called the Didache, which was written somewhere around the year 100. And um, scholars think that um, this last phrase of the of the prayer was added in for Christian worship. Um, they think that it was probably a Christian response of praise and affirmation that followed the Lord's prayer uh, in the context of worship. So, in other words, the earliest Christians used the Lord's prayer as an element of liturgy in their worship services. So, um, someone would say the prayer, and then the whole congregation would respond with this line: "For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory." forever and ever. Amen. And what I like about this is that right away this Lord's Prayer is taken up into the Christian confession, into the Christian community. Um, It's not just something that I pray, but it's something that we as a community pray. We perform it in, in certain ways, not as individuals trying to put on a show, but as a congregation before God. Now, the idea of prayer as something we do reminds me of a little book that was written back in the 1950s by a philosopher named J.L. Austin called How to Do Things with Words. And I don't know if you can see it here, but this is our daughter, Frances. This was taken about a year ago uh, when she was still super chubby. And um, she is here uh, learning how to do things with words. Uh, She's still learning how to do things with words, and by the way, I am still learning how to do things with words also. Um, but the basic idea of this book is that Austin points out that a lot of times when we say things, we're not just saying things, but we're also doing things, and Austin calls this a speech act, and the idea is that when we do things like make a promise or a give a command, um, we're actually performing an action when we say those words with our mouth, um, so uh, another example would be um, the act of marrying someone. Um, so when uh, the, the pastor in the wedding ceremony says, I now pronounce you man and wife, right? He's performed an action. He has married two people together. And, and also at the same time, the people, when they say, I do or I will, they're, right, they're committing an action, right, make, taking an oath or making a promise, and so the idea here is that, that we perform actions in our speech all the time. And I would suggest that prayer is a speech act as well. Um, and I want to say that we do a lot of different things in and with prayer. Um, we worship, we confess, we thank, we ask. Sometimes we plead and we argue, uh, we struggle and we doubt. Uh, There are a lot of different things that we do in prayer, even while we're just saying words, um, we might be struggling with God. Um, And there's a, one of my favorite quotes is is from Soren Kierkegaard, Um, no big surprise there. But how how you know that this is one of my favorite quotes um, is that like back when I joined Facebook, like nine or ten years ago, there's this thing where you're supposed to put your favorite quotes and so I was like, oh, well, you know, this is one of my favorite quotes. So, I put, so it's probably still on my Facebook somewhere. Um, and this quote uh, from Kierkegaard says this, The true prayer is a struggle with God in which one uh, is victorious in the victory of God. The true prayer is a struggle with God in which one is victorious in the victory of God. So um, I, think, I think we all have this experience of struggling with God in prayer. Um, do we have the same experience of feeling victorious in prayer? Have you, all, ha, have you had this experience um, where you're praying to God and you're doubting God's existence at the same time that you're praying to him? Right? That's happened to me. Um, there's, there's prayers that when, when we're sort of in our, like, quote-unquote prayer closet, when we're praying by ourselves, we might have struggles and doubts and, you know, God, why? God, what? What's going on here? Um, and I think we've all had, had prayers like this where we feel sort of alone and isolated before God. Is God even hearing me? And I want to say that when we pray together as a community, uh, among the things that we're doing is that we're expressing our faith in God together. As a community, we're expressing our solidarity with one another. We're lifting each other up. Um, when some of us may have doubts, other, others of us may be full of faith, um, right? And this varies from person to person uh, at different times. And so it's been said that the prayer of the community binds its people together um, because we're expressing in common intention and in common focus our worship of God. Um, sometimes we don't know how to pray as we ought, um, and we share our praying and our not knowing how to pray together. Um, We're sharing our confession of our dependence upon God, uh, our plea for the kingdom of God to come in this world, uh, and our common lot as the children of God. Now, it's been a tradition of the church uh, to pray the Lord's Prayer together as a congregation, um, and uh, it's been seen as a communal prayer. Now, some of you may have grown up in a more liturgical church where you've prayed this prayer a whole lot, Uh, and maybe it didn't mean that much to you where it just seemed like you were praying this thing over and over again and it didn't really, it was just sort of like you repeated it, but it didn't have any meaning to you. Um, and I, I want to suggest that the the, the Lord's prayer can have, um, meaning and a deeper significance. Um, and it can shape us as we pray it together as a community, um, and in groups, uh, as well as when we pray it individually. Um. And I think there's something really powerful about praying a prayer uh, that we didn't come up with. Um, Praying a prayer that might seem like a formula, but really is um, something that we can rely on, um, something solid. And so uh, another quote that I like from the theologian I quoted earlier says this, the highest intimacy with God is said in, in the speech that we do not invent, but which invents us in that it finds us and unveils us there where we were without our knowing it. Um, so I, I think that, that if we allow it to, and if we can think through um, the ways in which Jesus encouraged his listeners to pray uh, the Lord's Prayer, um, that it can shape us and change us and transform, it, transform us. Um, it can be an avenue for change in our lives. So this is leading up to what you think it's leading up to. And that is, in a couple of moments, I'm going to ask us all to sort of stand, uh, if you're able, and join hands and pray uh, uh, together. And then after that, we'll take communion. And a number of commentators have linked communion, or the Lord's Supper, with the Lord's Prayer. So in this idea of asking for bread, uh, we recall that Jesus described himself as the true bread which has come from heaven. Uh, that Jesus is the bread of life. And so that when we receive communion, um, we receive the bread of life. And when we pray for God to give us bread, um, we receive and we pray for Christ to nourish us, to fill us up with him. So I'm gonna ask everybody now to stand uh, and join hands And pray, and we'll do this in the uh, good old-fashioned King James version, and we'll use the word debts here, just so that nobody gets nobody gets confused. All right, so let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And now we can uh, sit for a moment as we prepare for communion. And the communion servers can begin to get the elements ready. Um, And as we turn to take communion, I'm reminded of a beautiful tradition in the Roman Catholic Church. And and I'm not gonna suggest that we do this here, uh, but there's this tradition that you may have seen or heard about where the the person who's taking communion, um, the bread is placed upon their tongue and the cup is lifted up to their mouth. And the meaning or the significance behind this is supposed to be um, that we... Uh, lack the capability to feed and nourish ourselves that when we 're receiving christ um, right we can 't even lift our hand to our mouth to feed ourselves, but we need Christ, um, we need grace uh, in order for our nourishment to occur and so I want to think about this, and I want to think about our uh, the ways in which we 're dependent upon God um, as we as we take communion, and I want to think about. Um, the ways in which our prayers and our our daily practices can um, lead us into spiritual transformation before God. So we're going to take communion here at Watermark. We take communion every week. Um, We take a piece of bread, we rip it off, we dip it in the cup. The bread represents the body of Christ. Um, The cup represents the blood of Christ uh, shed for us and for our sins. and so if you're a believer or a follower of Christ, I'd ask you to come and take communion. Um, if you need prayer, uh, there's a prayer room out the door just to the left. Um, and so uh, let's, let's think and reflect upon um, what Christ has done for us um, and the position that we stand before God and, and our uh, position as children of God and as being independent uh, on God as well. Um, so let's take some time, uh, talk to God. Uh, and then take communion.